We've been teaching a little bit from, uh, well, been going through the book, basically. God, why? Why do bad things happen to good people? Because that's a very common question, uh, and it opens up the door to a lot of scriptural uh, conflicts, like what about this and what about that and what about this and what about that. So we're trying to go through it comprehensively, and that's how the book's been written. And the main reason is so that people understand that God is good. And since the cross of Jesus Christ, what he can give to the human race is total goodness, and kindness, and mercy. And so we want the Christian to live his life properly, not with an Old Testament view of an angry God who was always focused on punishing sinners. Through the cross, God's, God's been able to change his ways. He didn't change. He's the same God. But because he paid for our sins through his son, now he can view us differently. He can bless us differently. He can treat us differently. He has become our father. And so in the New Testament, we have to spend lots of time learning how to relate to God as father. Rather than as... So a son to a father rather than as a slave to a master who's concerned and, and feels the threat constantly. God says he's put the spirit in us so that we would no longer be a slave but a son. He adopted us, put the spirit of adoption inside of our hearts so we could call God father and not feel like a servant or a slave. Jesus says, I don't call you servants, I call you friends. So, so New Testament people, saved people, need to spend time learning who they are as a son, a child of God. Amen. Then you can start expecting mercy, long-suffering, patience, goodness, that forever and ever he wants to show his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. So that's how we live our life. And so you and I can go through life. If you're a sincere Christian, you get the benefit of the cross. If you want God in your life and you're sincere about it, you can have the blessing of God in you. You get to experience all the benefit of this new covenant. One of the benefits being, because he told Israel, he said, I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel one day because they didn't keep my old one anyway. I'm going to make a new covenant and I'm going to not remember their sins. Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. So he made these covenant promises in the old. They passed through the cross. Now we're experiencing this new covenant where he doesn't remember your sins from day to day. He's not holding your sins against you. He's not looking to punish. So, he, so, so a Christian, a believer in God does not need to think, well, if I sin, I get punished by God. That's not how he does it. When bad things happen, it's not because God's punished you for what you did last week. So I, I want to cover some things tonight um, so that you understand basically 99% of your life, 99.9% of all bad things fall into those, categor, those categorical reasons that we've already given. Number one, because of the sin-infected world. Number two, because of, that's right, lack of knowledge. Number three, exactly the devil. Number four, exactly the choice system, the law of sin and death. And number five, exactly, you got that right, because people ignore the voice of God. So there's, those are the basic reasons why all bad things happen. 99.99% of the things that happen to you will be, if they're not good, it's because of one of those. Meaning you can fix it. Amen. <clears throat> there's some exception cases in the Bible, and I want to get to those tonight. 
Because invariably you start talking about this and somebody that knows the Bible says, but what about, but what about, but what about? So we got the answers to all the what abouts. Open to Second um, uh, Thessalonians chapter 1, please. Second Thessalonians chapter 1. There was plenty of punishment in the Old Testament. You see that God had to. For the justice system of the universe, he had to punish sin because if someone's hurt, then justice cries out and says, do something about this. So he had to, and it was death. He sent his people to kill the heathen, to kill nations, to destroy the pagans. But since the cross, he's not doing that anymore. He's sending the gospel to save the heathen. He's sending the good news to restore the pagans, to help people be saved. Jesus came to save his people from their sins, not kill the people for their sins or punish people for their sins. He came to save them. So in the Old Testament, you'll see the word punish or punishment uh, uh, 60 or more times in there. Uh, in the New Testament, you know how many times you see the word punish? Like two or three so the theme changes at the cross. The, the whole theme of God, the whole theme of this world changes at the cross. It's not about punishing for sin anymore. And when you see the word in the New Testament, it's talking about punishing disobedience in the thousand year reign of Christ. Punishing disobedience later, not now. Second uh, Corinthians 10 says that actually we're going to be doing the punishing. Jesus comes with 10,000s of his saints, and we're going to do some executing. Right. And it actually says, being ready to punish all disobedience when our disobedience is fulfilled. 2 Corinthians 10.6. Once Jesus comes and, and our life has been finished on this earth or in this, uh, round, uh, this phase of life, then we begin to help him punish. We rule the earth for a thousand years, you know. And on the, the day of... Uh, uh, Armageddon, on the, the great battle, we fight with Jesus. He comes with 10,000s of his saints. The saints come with him to destroy the evil at the, at the Valley of Jehoshaphat. So anyway, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, I wanted to read this. Chapter 1, verse 8 says, or let's re read verse 6. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all, all those who believe. See that? When does this punishment take? Yes, he's going to punish. Yes, there's a judgment day. There's a day of wrath. There's a punishment day, but it's not today. And it's not tomorrow. It's when he comes. In that day, when he comes, these evils shall be punished with everlasting destruction. So punishment's coming, but in this dispensation or this church age or this time right now where we're trying to get the gospel to the world, Punishment is not the theme. Is everybody okay with that? If you're not, go to Jude. I'm going to read some in Jude. 
Because Jude and Peter both mentioned some of this vengeance stuff and this punishment stuff, but every time it's mentioned, it's talking about later, not now. Why? Because the blood of Jesus is speaking for us right now. Number one, because Christians aren't going to get punished. Jesus was punished, so we don't have to be. So Jude, chapter one, don't get lost in Jude. Jude chapter one talks about evil people that crept in. All right. So here's how God's going to handle them. Verse four, Jude, verse four, for certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. God knew who they were going to be. Ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. You see that a whole bunch today, even in pulpits where they're defiling the word of God, you know, proclaiming new truth, which isn't truth at all, but it's lies. There's ungodly stuff going on then and now. Verse eight, I mean, I'm going to skip some of this, but verse eight, likewise, these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority and speak evil of dignitaries. Verse 11, woe to them. They have gone in the way of Cain. They've run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit perished in the rebellion of Korah. Verse 14, now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all. When's that? That's not today. That's when he comes back to the earth. Mm -hmm. To execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they've committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Stop there. It's a lot of ungodliness. There's a day that they're going to be penalized. So we can take comfort knowing that justice will prevail. Right now, we're going to let mercy prevail because in every justice system, mercy is an option. Every judge that sits behind the bench has a gavel and he can declare mercy and judgment because mercy's always been part of a justice system. Right now, it's total mercy. There's going to be a day when it's wrath and judgment. The mercy has run out. But right now, that was the plan of God that he could give goodness and mercy to everybody right now. So that's the theme, and I want you to be able to live under that. So we're trying to retrain so many Christians who were brought up differently. So many were brought up in families that believed in God. And parents even would threaten children. You better watch out or God's going to get you. You better watch out or God's going to get you. That's not how you say it in the New Testament. Sure, sure, you live a life of rebellion. Watch out. But it's not God who's going to get you. It's the devil. So if you walk outside of God's protective house, look out. The devil's going to get you. It's the devil that's going to get you, not God. So stop pulling God in. He's a father to us. He's not going to be the hammer on your head. So we've got to get this straight so that we understand God properly. And if we don't, then, then it will distance us from God. And we won't be able to trust him properly. Even when we go with a legitimate prayer request, if we think God had something to do with our calamity, it'll be too hard to have faith. You kind of have faith, but you're not sure if he wants this evil thing to continue in your life. So you're not sure how to pray. And then you start wondering if God really loves you because all this stuff, well, if God really loved me, then I just don't know. I must not be very close to him. You can't live like that. You got you to get secure in the scriptures. 
you got to start believing what he said about Jesus Christ, that you are saved from the wrath of God through Jesus Christ, that by his blood you are forgiven and expunged of all guilt. So that's why we, we, we major on that. And I want that, that, that's the theme. That's the reason for the book, so that people get an idea that God is he's really good. And that's, only, that's the only thoughts he's thinking of me and you. Thoughts of good and peace and not of evil. To give us a future and a hope. <clears throat> Turn with me to Matthew 18. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about some of these exception cases. There's some exception cases in here uh, for certain reasons. And it's not chastisement. We're going to have to do chastisement another day. To be chastened by the Lord is child training and correction, yes, for true believers. True children get chastened, yes. But that's not what we're talking about today. That's a different topic, and it falls under different parameters. And none of those parameters are harm. A parent does not harm their child to train them. They may shock them, but they don't harm them. They don't steal from their life or kill them or hurt them. So that's chastisement. We'll do that another time. This is exceptional cases beyond chastisement, child training, rebuke, and correction. This is beyond that. And this is what we're talking about now is not really punishment. I mean, you could kind of say it's punishment, but it's not really punishment for sin. It's something even more severe. Something even more severe. There's three severe violations. Number one, to offend his little ones. Number two, to parade sin close to God or too close to God. Basically, don't touch the ark. And number three, blaspheme of the Holy Spirit. Some of the most difficult topics to discuss in Christianity, but we've got to do it because we're Bible people, right? We're not favorite word people. We're total word people. So we got to identify some things and make sure that we have answers. Matthew 18. Is everybody there? We'll start with offending uh, his little ones. Jesus made these statements and and, uh, several of the gospels record them. Matthew 18. He's talking about uh, coming to the kingdom as a little child, etc., But then he says, verse 6, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Mark's gospel says, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble or sin. It's not talking about little kids. It's talking about little ones who believe, young Christians. So it could talk about children, but it's really young believers, if anyone, or or those about to believe, those with open hearts, those innocent ones who are coming to the Lord Jesus in in sincerity, uh, if you start deterring them, look out. I mean, that's pretty simple, right? he's, he's, He's expressing the severity that something's gonna happen, and it'd be better for you if you just drowned. What he's saying is this is a big deal to God. Somebody messing with somebody that believes in God in that way, this is a big deal to God. Okay? So that's the premise, I believe, for this main, uh, this first reason. 
Go to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. This is kind of a fun one on one hand, but on the other hand, it's pretty severe. It says this, Acts 13 verse 6, Now when they had gone through the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So here you got an honest-hearted, even an intelligent man, Sergius Paulus, calling to hear the word. Verse 8, but Elamus, the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul from the faith. And then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, Oh, full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord, or the doctrine of the Lord. Did you know this is part of our doctrine? Amen. Somebody said, oh, why, are you, why are you reading that, Pastor? Well, would you rather see it? Or would you rather us talk about it in the 13th chapter of Acts? which is the beginning of the church. So what you have to recognize, Saul executed this whole millstone thing. Paul, Paul recognized, okay, what you're doing is violating something very precious to God. We're about, somebody's about to be saved and you're, and you're right. trying to, right. I'm gonna stop this right here. Right. We are not gonna let this man be in danger of going to hell because of you. And so he pronounced some sort of judgment upon the man, right? And it helped people believe, right? So that has to be allowed in our doctrine. We don't see that very often, but we're going to schedule a meeting for it uh, next week. <laughs> um, we just have to recognize it's serious business. The farthest I've gotten with this is I, I've told you the story. I, was with, I sat down. I was at a restaurant. We were about to leave, and I saw this table of three people they had in a booth, and I uh, saw an open slot to sit. So I just sat down. I just slid in there and said, hey, can I talk to you all for a second? <laughs> and started sharing the gospel with the group, and uh, one of the persons was very interested, I could tell, and very open and humble and honest and, see, and looking intently. And, and, and one of the, the louder voices started making fun and started interrupting and started trying to be funny. And, and I, and I recognized, whoa, 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 I'm losing this one. And so in my heart, it just rose up in me and I said, you shut up. I said, you hush. I'm talking to them. And he shut up. So that's as far as I've gotten with no blindness. Didn't have to blind the fellow. And this is not just, you know, somebody's irritating me and, and or they're hurting my feelings. And so I'm going to pronounce some kind of curse on them. I remember... I remember I had family, uh, believed in God, knew the Bible some, and 
they got in an, uh, the daughter and mother got in an argument and they started commanding Satan, you come out of, <laughs> you get behind me, something like that. It's like, this is not just you got your feelings hurt and you wanted to execute some sort of judgment on somebody. Don't do that. This is highly, highly spiritual. I mean, you got to be in the spirit. You got to know it's the Holy Spirit. You got you to be told what to do by the, the Lord to make something like this happen. So it's not very common, but it does happen. I've heard several stories from other preachers uh, of having to do something like this. I've read a few things. Don't want to get into detail about the other stories. Uh, I know that Pastor Joni, she was in Peru and met this couple. Uh, and, and the lady was a, an evangelist from Guatemala. And she had been doing this campaign or some sort of meetings. And uh, the car, some cartel in the area had been coming to the meetings and getting saved and radically transformed. And it was a big deal. And, and then one night she's up there preaching. And one of the cartel heads uh, get, gets up on the stage and puts a gun to her head. And said, you know, you shut up and you get out of here. I'm going to kill you. And uh, she looks at the man and says, no, no, you repent now and receive the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, no, I'm not. You get out of here. Keeps the gun on her. And uh, she said, if you don't repent right now and believe in the Lord, you're gonna, you'll be dead in three days. <clears throat> you know, she's preaching the gospel in a meeting and getting threatened by a thug. Not even a religious thug, just a thug. You know, some religious persecution, you, you're supposed to accept some. Jesus promised you'd be persecuted uh, by the government, by religion. But, but thugs, ah, uh, no, 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 not thugs. And so the story is, she was telling Pastor Joni that within a couple days, the police came to her to interview her and investigate because the man died. In his house, by himself, no, no injury or anything, just dead. So think about it. Gospel meeting, people are getting saved, radical things are happening. Somebody's trying to interfere with that. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You're not going to stop this. Now there's other stories where there was threats and, and, and the answer from the Lord was get out of there. Same with Paul. Paul sometimes had to sneak away from people that wanted to kill him. So a lot of this, it has to be led by the spirit. There's no pat answer for every situation. Terry Mize, our friend, you know, uh, he had a gun pulled on, he picked up a hitchhiker uh, just to be nice in Mexico and tried to lead him to the Lord. And the man pulls a gun on him and robs him. And the first, first thing out of his mouth was, you can't shoot me in the name of Jesus. You can't kill me in the name of Jesus. And that's all Terry Mize said the whole time. He said, you can have my money, you can have my wallet, you can have, all my, you can have my watch, you can have everything, but you can't kill me. The man says, I'm going to kill you. Pull over. Made, made Terry take his clothes off and, and, that, and, and Terry said, said, stop right there. He said, you can't kill me. In Jesus' name, you can't kill me. And the man said, I sure can, and then emptied his gun point blank, and all the bullets hit the dirt. <laughs> and then Terry Myers says, uh, give, me my, give me my stuff back. <laughs> he, let him keep his, he, let, he let him keep his money. He said, you can keep my money, and I'll take you wherever you want to go. <laughs> So every situation has to be led by the Spirit, and you have to have faith, and you have to know where God is and, and what to say, and understand some things about the Spirit realm. All right, 1 Corinthians 5. First Corinthians 5, verse 1. 
This is Paul dealing with a situation at the Corinthian church. And here's where he starts writing. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 1. He said, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And such sexual immorality is a, as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. So in the church, he's saying, get the fellow out of, the, you should have got him out of there. And there's a reason for that. You can't let known sin stay or it will spread. And the innocent will cry out. Why are you letting this? Why are you letting this person? Why? Verse three, for I indeed as absent in body, but present in spirit have already judged as though I were present him who has done this deed. Notice that Paul said, I've judged the matter. And you need to understand that inside the church, we can judge. Did you know that? Not judging heart condition, not judging people's hearts and motives and such, but there, we have to have order and judgment's part of that. I'll read your scripture in a minute. In the name, verse four, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you're truly unleavened. Stop there. Verse, uh, skip to verse 9. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world, out to the world, basically. So when he, when he commanded, don't hang out with sexual immor immoral people, he's not saying don't hang out with sinners, because you're already not supposed to hang out with sinners. Amen. I mean, you can, you can be around them to get them saved, but you can't go hang out with them. Amen. He's talking about brothers. People in the church, you're not supposed to hang out if they're sexually immoral, covetous, extortioners, idolaters. Later on, he says drunkards. Verse 11, but now I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater, a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a portion of a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourself the evil person. So inside the church, Jesus is the judge. We'll read a scripture about that in a minute. Jesus is the judge. The Father has given all judgment to the Son. The Father of the children has given the judgment to the Son. But outside, God is not Father to them. So outside, God has a system out there. And, so, and, and part of that system is the law of sin and death. And part of that system is the fact that if, if you violate inside, you're outside and the devil can have you. Not that God's zapping you with lightning, but you're open prey to the devil. And if you're going to do that and be rebellious and not repent, then you'll be, a, you'll be outside of the protection of God and you'll have a flashing, blinking red light in the spirit. Yes. Get me, get me. Here, the target, a target sign. For the devil. 
So God takes care of everything outside the church. Jesus takes care of everything inside the church. So we're, God is not the judge of you. Jesus is the judge of you. Did you know that? So you're still judged. Don't judge me. Jesus judging. Now that's good news though. You need to know that that's good news that Jesus is your judge. Because Jesus became a man. And he was tempted in all points like we are so that he would be a faithful and merciful high priest toward us. He knows what we've been through. Now he can help and succor us. So back to this story. So what has happened here is, is Paul said, this is not a whim. This is highly spiritual. He said, when you're gathered in, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ with my spirit, highly spiritual, right? Deliver this person to Satan. Can you do that? Well, if you're a Bible person, you got to accept it. We're going to have one of these meetings next. No. I've heard of some stories of churches having to do this. We've gotten cl- I think we've gotten close here with somebody that wouldn't repent and wouldn't have any remorse and wouldn't stop. Uh, but then finally, they just left. That's usually what people do. They just leave. But if, you were in, if there was just one church in your city, you couldn't leave. So this idea of just hopping around where nobody knows you is just, it's just the strangest, hardest thing to, to mess with. Anyway, so we haven't had to do this, but we've gotten close. But it's highly spiritual, and there's reasons for it. What is the reason? Paul said, deliver such a person, deliver this man to Satan. Why? For the destruction of his flesh. Why? So that his soul could be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So here you have an unrepentant believer in Christ. He believes in Jesus. He's saved. He's born again. But he's committing a sin that's known in the church. Now, there's a lot of people that have shortcomings and struggle with sin in the church. And if you're working on it and you care to re- and you have remorse and you're repenting and you're convicted by it and you're trying to get help and you're praying through it, and you- that's another story. There's, there's long suffering for you. There's great patience and mercy and space for you. But a known sinner who refuses to repent, that person has to be dealt with. Deliver him to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Why? So a saved person who won't repent, deliver him to Satan so that he can still be saved? And this answers some of the question of, uh, does unrepentant sin lead you to hell? Well, maybe, maybe not. If you die before hardening your heart to Christ, you go to heaven. So deliver him to Satan so his flesh can be destroyed. Either killed before he stops believing in Jesus, he goes to heaven. Or he repents and comes back. Destroy the flesh so it gets his attention. And then he can repent and get out of the snare of the devil and come back into the church. And then he's saved. If you don't deliver such a one to Satan, they continue to live a life of rebellion and disobedience. And the potential is there for them to harden their heart toward Jesus Christ and, and give up their salvation. Now, some people hate to say, hate anybody that says that. Oh, you can't lose it. I'm not talking about losing it. Like, oops, I accidentally uh, had too many sins. No, this is a person that decides in their heart they don't want Jesus. We're going to talk about that in a minute. <clears throat> the point of no return. 
Does that make sense? Deliver to Satan so that the person can either have themselves destroyed and go to heaven or repent and get back in the right grace with God. Feels good, right? You've read this, you've wondered, oh my gosh, let me get to the next page. (laughs) Now it makes a little more sense, doesn't it? And if it doesn't make sense to you, read the book. And that still doesn't make sense, email us. And, and, and we'll sit and, we, and bring up all your scriptures. We've got to get these answers. Turn with me to uh, Revelation chapter 2. Paul did this another time. Uh, in 1 Timothy verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 20, he says, Hymenius and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme He also had mentioned that Alexander the coppersmith did him much harm. The Lord would repay him. So there's this, you know, rebellion and blatant sin, it's sinister. It's not acceptable. So when you call somebody out on some blatant rebellion and they say, don't judge me. You can tell them, fine, but I'm getting away from you. And if their, if their blatant sin is, is going to begin to hurt people, then we got to deal with it. And you can, you can instruct them, hey, if you don't go tell the pastors, uh, I'm going to tell them. We're not trying to get, well, maybe that's not the right instruction. We're not trying to turn everybody into tattletalers. Because love covers a multitude of sins. But if there's a pattern of unrepentant sin that's potential to hurt other people in a, in a real way, man, it's got to be dealt with. But for all the shortcomings that you know from other people in here, just love covers a multitude of sins. So get over it. Don't be offended. Okay? Uh, I said Revelation chapter 2, right? Y'all know where Revelation is? If you're a new Christian, it's in the back, the very last book of the Bible. And matter of fact, if you're a new Christian here, I know this is heavy stuff. So normally it's not quite this heavy. But we got to deal with both sides of the coin here. We got to understand the way the system works. Under the new covenant, since Jesus died for our sins. Revelation chapter 2 here. Uh, this is the letters that Jesus was writing to the seven churches. And he's, uh, as a judge, he's telling the leaders of the church what to do, what he likes, what he doesn't like, and uh, what to change. And I'm going to have to skip most of it and get down to chapter 2 here, verse 18. To the angel or the messenger, and some people think it's the pastor, Of the church in Thyatira, write this. These things, says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works. The reason we can take the word angel and say messenger is because it's the Greek word agelos. And it means both. It means messenger and it also is used to to say angel. He's not really writing to the angel. This is a physical letter given to a person. He says... uh, Verse 19, Jesus says this to the church. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. You're doing something for God. 
Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent. King James says space to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the hearts and minds, the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. That's not a very fun passage, is it? But you have to recognize, this goes back to the millstone. She's teaching believers to fornicate. She's turning people from the faith. Sinister. Severe in the eyes of God. Something must be done here. And he's saying, you're letting this woman do this. Same thing that Paul said. He told the church, you're letting this man stay. So Jesus is not happy they let her stick around. Now, because they didn't do something about it, he's going to do something about it. And he's going to execute some severe uh, justice here. Now, this is not the, have you ever heard the Jezebel spirit? This is not the Jezebel spirit that most people are talking about. They're talking about Old Testament Jezebel, the wife of King Ahab, who was a controlling wife. Just so you know that the Jezebel spirit is not lustful. When they say that, they're talking about controlling, a controlling spirit. Now, I don't really like the term Jezebel spirit. Uh, it, it's, it's one of those things that people have turned uh, stuff sensational that really doesn't merit. The Bible doesn't call anything the spirit of Jezebel or the, the spirit of Leviathan or the spirit of Python or the Ezekiel anointing or the Ruth spirit. Those are all sensational terms used to describe different people in the Old Testament. Or in the Bible somewhere. You don't really need to get that sensational to get, the, the, to get success from, from uh, Christianity. Like, why can't we just stick with Scripture and authority and do it the Jesus way? Jesus never said, hey, disciples, whenever you see this, that's the spirit of Barracuda. And, you know, you, then you've got to say the right thing. And this turns into the deliverance ministry trying to use all these fancy terms. And uh, you really don't need that to get a demon out of somebody. Amen. And if it's a controlling spirit, uh, it's probably, it's highly likely not even a demon. It's just the person is highly prideful and highly inconsiderate and not walking in love and not really fulfilling anything of the call of God on their life to be a, to be a real disciple. So we don't want to sensationalize things. It sure gets a lot of books sold and a lot of clicks online, but it's not necessarily scriptural. So I like to stick to scripture. It's like, what? What's the spirit of Leviathan? I better learn. It's nothing. The word is found in the Bible in, a, in an obscure place. It, you don't need to go that route. That's not how. It, in the long run, those fake things that people create to get a point across, they don't lead to any real Christian success. So we're, we try to keep you safe here. Hey, look, I'm sure that using those terms have worked at some point, but not because they use the term. Just casting the devil out. I don't care what you call him. You spirit of ugly demon, get out of there. No, you didn't say the right word, but you didn't pronounce Leviathan properly. So be careful of those things. So this is Jezebel, a New Testament Jezebel, who's teaching people to fornicate. And uh, Jesus steps in and 
Verse 21, I gave her time. See that? I gave her time to repent. She didn't repent. And this is not just repenting of a sin. This is repenting of leading others into sin. Amen. Uh, and the reason we say it that way is because Jesus also told us in 1 John that if, if anybody sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That if we will confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of unrighteousness. Simple as that. If we, if we sin, we confess our sin, we admit it, and he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin, and that's it. Simple. So if you, if you sinned a thousand times last month, and today you said, I confess those, I, I, I'm sorry, I admit those, God. Cleanse me. Bam. Cleansed and forgotten. Regardless of what your next thousand days is going to be like. Regardless of what you do next month, you're forgiven and clean. That's, that's the, the beauty of the cross of Jesus Christ. He, he made a promise. He will forgive you if you admit it. Now, if you get to the place where you don't have remorse, where you can't even admit it anymore, you're in danger. If your heart gets to the place where you, you stop talking to God or admitting to God or, or, or repenting or, or, or admitting or confessing, you get to that place, I can't make you any promises. You're, you're going to end up in the devil's playground. Because you'll have guilt. Your conscience will be tainted. You won't be close to God. You won't have any faith toward God. Because when you start living with unrepentant sin and a dirty conscience, it'll ruin your faith. And you'll stop feeling real close to the Lord. Your prayers won't get answered. You'll be open prey to the devil. And that's why in the Bible it says, listen, there's some things you got to be careful of so that you don't fall open prey to Satan. Like in, in the Bible, actually, actually regarding this story that we read from Paul, he wrote a second letter to the church at Corinth referring to this man. And he said, now listen, don't, don't treat the man like a sinner. Treat him like a brother. You kicked him out of the church, but still treat him like a brother. Acknowledge him as a brother. And if you forgive him, I forgive him. And if he's repented, let him back in. And it says, and we're not ignorant of Satan's devices, so you need to forgive him. Because if you don't forgive him, Satan will get an advantage of us. So if you live with unforgiveness, Satan will get an advantage of you. So there's some things like that that open the door wide to Satan. And that's why the scripture says that uh, you, you, we need to teach and be patient with people so that if, if they could possibly learn and acknowledge the truth and recover themselves out of the snare of the devil. So we have to help people get out of the devil's snare. It's not God punishing every single person. It's the devil. People make choices or neglect things. So don't neglect your conscience. Stay close to the Lord. Some people say, you don't need to confess your sin. He loves you. He's forgiven you. and Just go about your business. No, in any honest relationship, there, there's uh, apologies made. Every relationship, husband, wife, friends, if you, if you really hurt somebody or you do something against their will in a, in, a, in, a, in a way that's clear, admit it. You have to admit your sin to the people you love or it creates dishonesty in the relationship. You mean you're not even going to admit what you, you're not even going to acknowledge what, what, we, what just happened? That would be wrong. 
Same thing with God. If you can't admit a wrong to God, that's dishon- dishonesty will build in your heart. But if you do admit it, he's faithful and just to forgive you, 1 John 1, 9, and cleanse you of unrighteousness, all unrighteousness. Hallelujah. So how long do you have to repent? Well, if you're alive, you can repent. Oh, good. But don't put it off. How stupid to put it off. He'll give you space to repent, time to repent, but don't put it off. Turn to John 5. John 5, verse 20. Luke, he always sneaks in there. It's four letters. John chapter 5, verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. John, John chapter 5, verse 22. The Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. That all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Look at John chapter 12. Just so you know where Jesus is in the matter. He is your Lord. He is your master. He is the judge. Verse 47. And if anyone, this is John 12, 47. If anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Isn't that interesting? If, if somebody rejects Jesus and does not get saved, they're not in the family, not in the kingdom. Jesus doesn't judge them. He came to save them. He just wants to save their soul. But once you get in the church, now he, wants you to, now he wants to turn you into a good Christian. That's why he judges. His judgment is not harsh towards you. His judgment is not you go to hell. His judgment is I want to help you. As, as a, the leader of every family needs to make sure things are going right. The leader of the family needs to make sure the children are raised right, make sure each one of them is treating the other properly, make sure that they're being trained, make sure they're being corrected, make sure they're being educated. That's the leader of the family. Jesus is the leader of the family. If one sibling's hurting the other sibling, there's going to be some repercussion here because the sibling getting hurt is saying, help. Verse 48, he who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I've spoken will judge him in the last day. For I've not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And his command is everlasting. Stop there. So what Jesus is saying is, if you get saved, I'll be your judge. And that's good. You want that. You want Jesus to judge you in a personal way because he went through human life and he loves you dearly. And you've accepted him and been saved by his blood. You don't want to reject Jesus because then you have to go before the court system and the books are opened and it's all the book. There's no personal relationship about it. That's why we're trying to get people into personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ so that you're you're more favorably judged. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Uh, Acts chapter 12, 
Acts chapter 12. If you're sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, this is real. Yeah, it's real. That, that's what you're feeling is the fear of the Lord. You're, you're, not, you're not scared of God, but you're, you're experiencing some real reverence. Like, oh, this is serious business. Christianity, you know, I'm bought with a price. I need to value the blood. The cro- I need to value what has happened to me to the point that it changes my lifestyle. I don't just get to run freely in this earth life, I have a Lord to, to answer to. That's it's what it should happen. And in the Bible, when mighty miracles, even some of these severe things happen, everybody like, oh, helps them walk a little straighter for a little while. I remember in my first church, we had uh, this demon happened at the front and the pastor cast out the demon. That's the demon that spit on me. And I wasn't very happy about it. This guy comes up and I was one of the ushers and uh, he starts flailing around and the pastor grabs him and said, come out of him in Jesus name. And he's holding him for just a second. He says, Chaz, get, get, get behind him, get behind him. I'm like, no, no, no. I don't, I don't want to get flailed on. Just do it. Let him fall. This is the kind of, you want to let this guy fall? No. And so I went, I went ahead and got behind him and, and the, and the guy fell to the floor and I helped him down and, and he, he laid there as one dead. The pastor kept preaching and uh, I walked away and I looked down and there was big old spittle from the demon on my, oh, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to get behind him. I didn't want to get behind him. And about 60 seconds later, the man stands up. Praise the Lord. He was totally free. Hallelujah. <laughs> Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. Do I want to do this? Uh, we'll do Acts chapter 12. Okay. This is Herod. He, he's one of, the, uh, one of the question marks. King Herod, verse 1, chapter 12, verse 1. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take to seize Peter also. And then I'm going to skip the story. That's when Peter got arrested. The church prayed for him. The angel of the Lord let Peter out. Uh, and so it was a big miracle. Verse 19, but when Herod had searched for him and had not found him from the prison, he examined the guards and commanded they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. So uh, verse 20, now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord and having made Blastus the king's personal aid, their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food. Verse 21, so on a, on a set day, Herod arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. And then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God grew and multiplied. What in the world? Why couldn't he have done this to Hitler and Osama bin Laden and some politicians? Some evil billionaires, Putin... 
Come on, God, get another one. No, I don't think that's what happened here. First of all, you see how evil Herod was. He was harassing the church, killing Christians, killing the, the apostles. Uh, and then he killed the guards. He was just an unrighteous. He had time to stop. He had time to believe in Jesus. He was an evil man, and he was in charge of a lot of people. And so I believe this falls under the offending the little ones. Because he gave the oration and the people were claiming that he was a god. Because he didn't say, oh, no, no, I'm not. God said, that's it. He's leading people astray. There's going to be people worshiping him instead of seeking me. So I believe that falls in the category. It doesn't say that, uh, but I believe it falls in the category. Because there's a whole bunch of people that have done a whole lot of things and didn't give glory to God. And they didn't fall down dead. So I think we have to uh, at least open the door and say that's probably what happened. Some of these are probablys, uh, but we have to say probably it's because they were People were thinking he was a God and saying that. And so God said, no, no, we're not having that. You're already too evil. You've already started killing. That's it. Your, your space has run out. I think that's probably the case. Now, let's move to the next one here. And I don't want to go to all these scriptures because they're long. So I'm just going to have to recap a bit from the Old Testament, okay? The second reason here. So first reason is offending the little ones. That's what all those were. Turning people from the faith, causing people to sin, leaven spreading has to be stopped. Okay. Second reason is don't touch the ark or parade your sin too close to God. If you recall in the Old Testament, Moses wanted to see God. Remember God took him up on the mountain. Moses said, let me see your face. God said, you can't see my face. Nobody sees my face and lives, but I'll let you see the backside. And so he got to see the backside of God's glory because you can't look at God and live. There's something about this holiness versus sin thing that they don't go together. Holiness and sin cannot mix. And so through the, throughout the Old Testament, you'll see this. Matter of fact, when he was on the mountain, God said, don't let the people get close to the mountain and don't let them come up. Do not let the priest and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So God was going to sanctify just Moses uh, so that he could talk to him, but the people couldn't come because sin cannot touch the holy God. When sin touches the holy God, it dies. And that's why you see throughout the Old Testament law, the priest had rules to enter into the temple. They had to be clean. They had to sacrifice animals for their sins. They had to bathe properly. They had to wash their hands properly so that no iniquity was on them. And then they had to kill the animals and they had to take some of the blood and put it on their right ear, the priest's right ear, the priest's right thumb, and the priest's right big toe. Kind of strange. And then it says you got to take the blood and you got to put it all over their garments. And the reason is so that they do not incur iniquity and die when they come into the presence of God. They're about to come into the Ark of the Covenant where God's presence is. There's rules for that. says, whoever touches the altar must be holy. The altar shall be most holy. So with that said, that's how they treated the Ark of the Covenant. In the tabernacle of Moses, in the temple of Solomon, the Ark of the Covenant was God's uh, place. It was where the Holy Spirit would meet with the high priest. To get there, you had to be clean or you're going to die. So much so that they had to prepare the garments with pomegranates around the, the bottom of the, the garment 
a pomegranate and a bell and another pomegranate and a bell. So it would clang around. So when the priest went behind the veil to meet with God, you could hear them clanging. And if the clanging stopped, it meant they hadn't cleansed themselves properly and they were dead. And so the, the tradition says they, they tied a rope to them just in case. So, cause if they died in there, you couldn't get them out. So they just pull them out. So that's how, and, and it was done that for a reason, so that God would set this pattern to recognize holiness and sin don't mix. That was one of the major reasons of the entire Old Testament law. Go to 2 Samuel, Old Testament, chapter 6. Second Samuel, chapter 6. This is when the Israelites had been defeated and, and, and other nations had stolen the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, then uh, 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 Harrison Ford went looking for the Ark of the Covenant. But then they, 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 they overtook the Philistines and then they got the ark back, okay? So David's all excited about it because he knows there's power with God there and it was going to help their country once again. So David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000, verse 2. David arose and went with all the people, this is 2 Samuel 6, verse 2. All the people who were with him from Bel Judah to bring, up, uh, to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name, the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. So they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And they brought it out of the, the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And uh, verse 6, and when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. And you're not very happy about that, and neither is David. Verse 8, and David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah, and he called the name of that place Perazuzzah to this day. David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? And David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David, but took it to the house of Obadiah the Gittite. Remember that? Right. So David was not very happy that, that, that Uzzah had to die for an accident. He was, try, he was a good guy. He was just trying to help. Sinner, not saved, not cleansed, not a priest. Or not cleansed as a priest. Cannot touch the holy place. And he did it accidentally. And he died. Sin can't even accidentally touch God. Now, a sinner can come to God if they believe, and they can receive mercy. And they can get the blood of Jesus. But you can only get close to God through the blood of Jesus. The only way a sinner can approach God is through the blood of Jesus. At this point, there's no blood of Jesus. <clears throat> Turn to Acts chapter 5. Heard somebody say, yay. I guess that means you don't like Ananias and Sapphira. But anyway, no. 
No, just teasing. Okay, so this is after the cross. Jesus rose from the dead. Holy Spirit's come. Mighty things are happening. Multitudes are getting added to the church. Signs and wonders. People are getting healed. The apostles are, are starting this building of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a major outpouring. It's a wonderful time. The church is growing. Everybody's uh, together. Their hearts are together. They're loving each other. They're bringing all their goods to the church. To they're selling all their extra properties, bringing the, the funds to, to give out to the poor saints and distribute to everybody. It's just a glorious time of love and fellowship and all these wonderful things uh, managed and orchestrated by the Holy Spirit and the love of the saints, okay? So the, the atmosphere is this holy time. <clears throat> Verse 1, chapter 5. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. And he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. And then Peter said to her, how is it that you've agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And then immediately she found, fell down dead at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came and found her dead and carried her out and buried her by her husband. That was nice. Put her by her husband. <laughs> so great fear came upon all the church and all who heard these things. <clears throat> so what happened here? Well, either they weren't saved doesn't say that they were saved. Matter of fact, it says, verse 1, a certain man and his wife. It doesn't say a brother. Usually, brother or child is mentioned when it talks about a child of God or a child of Jesus Christ, okay? So it doesn't say brother, it doesn't say child, it says a man. So it's possible they weren't even saved. And then that falls under the category of don't touch the ark, right? Sinner can't touch the holy presence of God. Or... It was blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which we're going to get to in a second. But I want you to notice this. They brought the stuff, the, the person of God, the leader in that moment was filled with the Holy Spirit and knew something. Okay, so this is a word of knowledge. Listen, this is a word of knowledge Peter had from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit manifested, told him something's wrong here, asked the question. And then he knew that they were lying about what they brought. They didn't have to lie. They could have said, no, we only sold it for this. We would have solved the whole thing. But Peter knew, so he asked him, is this how much? And so the man, Ananias, did not lie to Peter because this was a word of knowledge. This was God speaking. This was the Holy Spirit manifestation, very holy. When the Holy Spirit manifests, it's very holy. You need to recognize this. And so that's why Peter said, you did not lie to man, but you lied to the Holy Spirit. Sin came right into the face of God and lied. Sinner, a sinner. Somebody sinned right in front of the Holy Spirit. Basically, defaming the Holy Spirit. Belittling the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus called it blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Lied, right? And so the, the takeaway from this for you and I, one of them is, hey, listen, if somebody ever has a word of knowledge for you, don't deny it. If ever it seems like God's calling you out, go with it. Obviously, not all liars die. Raise your hand if you're excited about that. I don't lie. Not all fibbers die. Raise your hand. Not all income tax manipulators die. So not all liars die. That's good. That's why lying doesn't mean you're punished. This is not punishment for sin. I dare to say this is not punishment for sin. This is execution for the justice system against something very harsh, very severe. You okay with that? Because if you were punished for lying, man, all of you would be really punished. So lying does not kill us. But then not everybody gets right into the presence of God and lies. This was a holy time for the church. Holy Spirit's moving. Mighty things are happening. It was a violation and some, some really, God must have known some really deep stuff in their heart that was just totally off and wrong. Sin came too close to God and paraded itself and died. I think that's the answer for Ananias and Sapphira. Thank you. The other possibility is that this falls under the blaspheme of the Holy Spirit. Matthew chapter 12, I think it'll be one of our last scriptures, except for the other two. Okay, Matthew chapter 12. Let's go through this pretty quickly. Uh, you, you know the passage probably, because everybody that starts reading the Bible starts in Matthew. Or you can start in John if you have to, but Matthew, first book of the New Testament is where you start reading your Bible. And in chapter 12, you run right into this. This is after the Pharisees blamed Jesus casting demons out by the prince of the demons, Beelzebub. It's like, what are you talking about? You can't cast out demons by the demon himself. Anyway, verse 31, then Jesus gives them this warning. He says, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven men. Blasphemy means speaking evil against, speaking wrongly against, uh, defaming, defiling, despising with words. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. That's pretty severe, isn't it? Now, we, we call this the unpardonable sin. It's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. In the context, it's don't attribute things of God to the devil. So when tongues is happening, be careful. It's like, I don't think that's the time to be blaming that on the devil because that's a holy thing. That's the most holy thing you can do by faith. Your most holy faith is praying in tongues or speaking in tongues. So be very careful about those things. But in this case, blaspheme the Holy Spirit is not forgivable. That's when you get right into the Holy Spirit and speak evil against him. Remember Jesus on the cross? They were all you know, hitting him and spitting on him and cussing him and all that. And he said, Father, forgive them. 
Because getting mad at Jesus, you can still be forgiven. Getting mad at God, you can still get forgiven. I mean, think of all the people that have cursed God in a time of, time of distress, cursed God. They thought he was with them. It didn't feel like he was, so they cursed God. For, that's forgivable. That's forgivable. God knows people's hearts. He's not going to hold that against you because you got you know, strained and stressed in this earth life. <clears throat> uh, go to 1 John chapter 5. Now, now listen, listen. If you're sitting there, okay, look up here just for a second. This is very uh, sincere. If you're sitting there and you're thinking, I wonder if I've committed the unpardonable sin. That's a lie from the devil. That thought is a lie from the devil. Okay? So you reject that. For the rest of your life, you reject that thought. Don't ever let the devil sit on your shoulder and convince you that you've committed the unpardonable sin. There are mental institutions filled with people who claim that. And the only reason they're there is because they let the devil obsess them that they can't be forgiven. They want to be, but they don't feel like they can because the devil's convinced them they've committed some unpardonable sin for something they said against the spirit in some way. Uh, that's a lie from the devil. All right, so don't, don't allow that. Have some strength about yourself and recognize, no, if you care about it, you have not committed it. That's, right. the, oh, that's the quickest way to know. If you care about being forgiven, then you have not committed the unpardonable sin. So then people say, well, what is the unpardonable sin? How does one commit that? Well, let's read these couple passages. First uh, John chapter one, verse five. I mean, first John chapter five. First John chapter five, verse 16. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin, which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray for it or pray about that. The blasphemy against the Holy Spirit would be the sin unto death. We could say uh, physical death. Maybe Ananias and Sapphira did do that and they died. Don't pray for them. You don't need people at the front trying to raise Ananias and Sapphira from the dead. Does that make sense? And then spiritual death. There are people that have rejected Christ to the point that there's no coming back. The first time you tell a family member about Jesus, they may reject him. The tenth time, they may reject him. The hundredth time, they may reject him. The thousandth time, they may reject him. But there comes a time when their rejection is so blatant and so hateful toward God, it may run out. And I don't know how long that would be or what that looks like. Uh, but there's a point where don't, don't pray anymore. Right. You've done what you can do. You got, you got to turn them over. You got to let them go. Right. I think that's what that scripture means. Now, the final scripture, Hebrews chapter six, this is the picture of one who can truly blaspheme the Holy Spirit. In order to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you got to get close to him. There's maybe a couple ways to get close to him. Like we said about Ananias and Sapphira, in the middle of a meeting, they lied right to the Spirit. There's danger there. Uh, or you had a walk with God that was very close. If you were to get in that place and reject Jesus from your heart, that's a dangerous place. Once you've known God to this intimate place, in the Spirit, by the Spirit, with the Spirit, to reject the notion of the Holy Spirit... And the fact of Jesus Christ, that's very dangerous. And that's what this passage is going to describe. 
He says this, it's impossible, verse 4, Hebrews 6, 4. It is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, seeing they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. All right? This is the type of person that could commit the unpardonable sin. Number one, they have to be enlightened, meaning Jesus' light has shined on them. They've entered the kingdom. They're enlightened. And tasted the heavenly gift. The heavenly gift is Jesus. That means they've been saved for sure. And have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit. Speaking in tongues. And have tasted the good word of God. Meaning that you've heard it. It's given you life. You know what it is. You know that it's right. And tasted the powers of the age to come. That's somebody that's used in the gifts of the Spirit, in the power of God, healing the sick, casting out demons, in some manner used in the manifestations of the Holy Spirit. That's the type of person. So if you're that close to the Lord and then fall away, then it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. So the person who rejects Jesus after all of these holy things And only God knows a heart. Okay, so first of all, everybody in here that's heard this tonight, listen, you're sincere, right? I'm trusting that you're a sincere Christian and you care about God and you care about these things and you want to get it right. You want to be a a real believer and a real child of God. Okay, so just for yourself, you're safe. Everybody in here is safe. If you're you're walking with God in a real way and, and doing your best, then you're safe. And you want to learn and you want to grow and you want to carry on with the Lord, you're safe, okay? So just settle that and stop worrying about family members right now. Amen. Listen, because you go through this stuff and everybody's so worried about their family. Stop that. Yeah. Side with Jesus first. Amen. Look, Jesus cares deeply about your family, more than you. But the way he views it is not with this emotional weakness. Recognize they're, they're well, well, what about my, I want my rebellious kid to go to heaven. No, no, first you want your rebellious kid to repent because what they're doing is completely wrong. Well, at least they'll go to heaven. Fine, fine. But, but don't get too con- concerned about them and start changing doctrine. God wants everybody to turn to him and live a right life. Okay? If, you're, if your person that you're caring about, if they have believed in Jesus and been saved, then they're still saved. Even if, even if they're in fornication... They're still saved as long as they either turn or, or never stop believing in Jesus for their salvation. Amen. Trust that they're still saved. But also, harp that they must turn. They must turn back. It's, it's a violation of God and it's severe. And you're in danger of going too far. So that's a whole other message on once saved, always saved, and, and how long is too long, and, and all these other things. Don't be so concerned about family that you forget the Lord Jesus cares more than you. Amen. And if they're saved, they're still saved. Just like you, who aren't perfect yet, are still saved, even though you have way too many shortcomings. I mean, not this side, but over here. I know, 
way too many shortcomings on the right side of the church. And God still loves you and he's having mercy and patience and mercy and patience. And your wayward child and your wayward grandchild, he's having mercy and patience and mercy and patience and mercy and patience and mercy and patience. So just settle that, okay? Just don't parade your sin in the face of God. <laughs> so it's possible Ananias and Sapphira did commit the unpardonable. They did get too close to the whole... To, to the Holy Spirit and blaspheme him or lie. Um, the good news is, as long as you're still alive, you can repent. Amen? Say again. Hebrews 3. You want to go through Hebrews 3? Anybody want Hebrews 3? Oh, you're talking about that. Okay. Hebrews 3, verse 12. Uh, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So just to see the scripture, if you go too far, your heart will harden because of the deceitfulness of sin. Sin feels like, okay, I can handle this. There's deceitfulness behind sin. And so don't harden your heart. Keep a soft and pliable heart toward the Lord. Amen. <clears throat> Praise the Lord. We don't know if we're going to see Ananias and Sapphira in heaven or not. We don't know. But does that give you a little more clarity maybe on what happened? Listen, the blood of Jesus is more powerful than your sin. 99.999% of the time. If you skip, skip around the blood of Jesus and trample it, then you're in trouble. So don't do that. Got it? Thank you for joining Pastors Chaz and Joni today from Houston Faith Church. If you're looking for a good home church in Houston, Texas, we'd like to invite you to be our guest anytime. What you'll find is that Houston Faith Church is highly committed to the Word of God, the love of God, and the Spirit-filled life and ministry that Jesus expects. We know that everyone wants to make a difference in this life, and that the Great Commission of the Lord Jesus Christ is the main thing for all of us. You'll find your purpose here and grow strong in faith at Houston Faith Church. Find more faith-building resources on our YouTube channel or subscribe to our free audio podcast. You can also connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. See you soon.